Hello, and welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm Ruth Haley Barton, your host, and we are moving through Lent, and we are talking about justice under the title of A Just Lent, Learning to Love What God Loves. And we think that Lent is an ideal season to look at issues of injustice, where we have fallen short of God's heart for humanity. It's a time for prayer and self-reflection and repentance around those ways in which we have been complicit with injustice. And also, we want to move towards practice. There's always going to be a call to practice. What can we do? What practices can we incorporate into our lives that help us to be justice leaders? I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Sheila Wise-Rowe. And Sheila is one of the contributors to the little booklet that we have been working through from InterVarsity Press, A Just Passion, A Six-Week Lenten Journey. And we're talking to many of the authors who contributed to this little work and also some others who are friends and alumni of the Transforming Center. But today we are privileged to welcome Sheila into this episode entitled The Work of Justice, Healing Our Broken Ways. Today we are going to talk about healing, and that is something that Sheila has written about um, in a very learned way, but also a very compassionate way, a very compelling way, very, very stirring to read about the role that healing racial trauma has in our justice journey. She is a truth teller who is passionate about matters of faith and emotional healing. She advocates for the dignity, the rights, and the healing of abuse and racial trauma survivors and works in the area of racial reconciliation. Her book, the one that we're working with today, was an award-winning book called Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience, released by InterVarsity Press, and then recently Young, Gifted, and Black, A Journey of Lament and Celebration. Sheila lives in Massachusetts with Nicholas, her husband of 31 years, and her nearly adult children, a daughter, a son, and a daughter-in-law. So welcome, Sheila. So glad to have you as our guest today. Thank you. Thank you for having Mm. me. Oh, it's good to be with you. And I also want to mention that we have our own Reverend Tina Harris with us today, hosting with me. And Tina, as you know, because you've been getting to know her in this season, she is ordained in the United Methodist Church, and she's also an attorney. And she is our community uh, connector and cultivator of community connections, but she's also fully empowered in the Transforming Center to work in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So thrilled to have her as a part of this conversation today as well. It's just going to be three strong women talking to each other, I yes, think. Lord, and so I'm <laughs> excited about I that. Oh. Well, Sheila, I want to get started right away and just dive into the deep end of the pool with your book, because you're writing around a really hard issue, and that is the whole topic of racial trauma. And you really dive deep right there at the very beginning, starting on page 10 in your book, you mentioned the many forms of racial trauma. So would you give us a working definition of racial trauma and then talk about some of the forms that it takes? Because I thought that was one of the things that was so eye-opening right away in the book is that it's not just one thing. There's many forms that racial trauma takes and so important for us to understand that. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, when looking at racial trauma, we have to start with well, what what are the causes of that, and mm-hmm. it's coming out of experiences of racism. And racism is not just interpersonal, which is what most people think. It's just between two people, or maybe it's a group of people. However, the issue is that this can have happened recently, as recent as today or last week, or historically. So mm-hmm. we're looking at racism that has experienced maybe in our family line. We see racism experienced in things like a lot of 
protests, et cetera, during 2020 around monuments, tearing down monuments. There are ways in which there are these meta communications that uh, in which racism is what is seen by one group as this is part of our culture is seen by black folk in particular that this is not what that means. This is a reminder of the enslavement of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. And it's a reminder or it's asserting this notion of who's in, in power and who's in control. So you're dealing with generational, transgenerational things that have gone through family lines. You're dealing with issues of racism in our communities and who gets to live where and who has access to resources. We saw a lot of that in 2020 with COVID and the initial numbers for not just Black folk, but people of color, period, were just off the charts in terms of deaths. Mm -hmm. So you, you see systemic racism occurring. And as a result of that, what happens is, is that there's this traumatic stress um, that is a result of experiences of racism that has been coined as racial trauma. It goes by, some people call it race-based traumatic stress. It may have different names, but the reality is that we have these experiences, our ancestors have had these experiences, we're carrying the weight of that and stress of it. And oftentimes we're not even aware that that's the case Mm. or that's what that is. There's Mm -hmm. so many people who have said this is, the book was Mm eye-opening because it really helped name some things for them and that they were exhibiting symptoms and they they weren't sure like what that was. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the symptoms of having had these experiences, again, whether it's generational or whether you yourself have experienced it, there's anger, there's shame. It affects our ability to think clearly. It affects our sleep, affects our relationships. In some ways, it's very similar to post-traumatic stress. However, what is happening is that it's not just a one-time event, it's compounded. And it's not just what what research has shown is that it's not just this, you know, one thing, but because it's one after the other after the other, that it actually has a greater impact than like some major traumatic event that occurred. Mm-hmm. And so you see that in, in many different ways. But when I think about like young men being pulled over by police mm-hmm. officers and mm-hmm. like, well, why didn't they stop? Why didn't they comply? And it's because they, in some cases, they've been pulled over a hundred times or they've been tailed in the mall um, by security guards. And it wasn't just one incident. There are stories of really high profile people like Oprah, who's, you know, was basically in a high, high, high end store and was basically profiled in a store. Mm -hmm. She's, She's a black woman. Like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? So it's those kinds of things that just wear on one's um, sense of, of of belonging, of one's dignity, and over time it really begins to it, it it affects how we navigate through life. And I think one of the important pieces is that with the whole notion of how do we how do we do reconciliation between races? You know, my book is not just about a black and white issue; it yeah, really yeah. is people of color. Um, And that on many levels, we've all experienced something not being white in this country. And so we are walking around with pain and that has to be addressed. If we're going to really go into this place of like true reconciliation, we've got to work through 
that and not just kind of jump over that because it it feels in many ways like in the church that we don't deal with the underlying pain we just want to rush to reconciliation Mm. it can be premature Mm -hmm. and oftentimes it becomes kind of very shallow yeah and it doesn't acknowledge the need for the deep kinds of healing that you talk about in your book it's like we just want to rush people through it Mm -hmm. and not give them even any space for true healing absolutely what what puts an experience in the category of trauma? You mentioned that people often don't realize that they have been traumatized or that what they've experienced is in the category of trauma. There are some experiences that are just hard experiences, but then there are experiences that we would put in the category of trauma. And you hold a master's degree in counseling psychology, and you've ministered to abuse and trauma victims both in the States and in Johannesburg, South Africa. How would you p- help people to know whether or not what they have experienced is in the category of trauma? Um, you know, for the first thing I want to say is that it is not up to me to judge whether someone has experienced trauma or not, mm-hmm. or whether it was traumatic to them. Mm-hmm. Because as individuals, we have we have our own stories. We have our own histories. Mm-hmm. There are ways in which we have, I might have an incident that taps into something that happened to me really early on. And, and it may be to an outsider looking at that. It's like, well, what's the big deal? I don't get it. And so I don't try to do that. It's more about for that person, what was the meaning and, you know, behind mm-hmm. what happened? How did that affect them? Um, when you're looking at trauma, you know, it's usually this, this heightened state of a, this alertness, this I've got to respond. And what happens is, you know, it's, everything's on high alert. And with trauma, there's no standing down. So you're constantly on high alert. Mm-hmm. And particularly with racial racial trauma, there's this hypervigilance. It's always kind of looking over your shoulder, looking around. And because we don't have the, the opportunity or even the knowledge to kind of stand down from that and to so we're walking around carrying this stress in our bodies mm-hmm. and it's wearing on us. There's this term called weathering, um, which is this premature aging that is occurring. So for for women and men of color, it can feel like you look great on the outside, you know, so it's like mm-hmm. black don't crack. <laughs> it's kind of, <laughs> you know, we look fabulous. Yes, no you do. People. Yes. <laughs> but internally, though, there's, mm-hmm. there's, we're holding stress. We're holding weight mm-hmm. in our bodies. We're holding stress, and there's internal damage that has been being done to our organs in many cases, unless we are able to release that, that stress and that toxic, the toxins from our bodies. So I'm not sure I answered your question. Well, one of the things I heard in what you said was, first of all, the person themselves gets to define yeah. whether or not it's in the tra- tra- uh, category of trauma for them. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I heard you say that seemed really important in answer to this question was that it touches something perhaps old, something that you've already experienced. So it's not just about the one experience yeah. that you just had, but it touches old experiences, older experiences, that's another way in which you can tell it's traumatic is that it's touching earlier experiences that you have had that may be unresolved that you're just tolerating. And I just want to clarify the earlier experiences can be something that I personally have experienced or that my community or my family has experienced, right? So it could be a collective experience, not just a personal, right? Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's that, you know, there's a term called vicarious trauma in which yeah. mm-hmm. you know the just watching the videos or being online there are ways in which we can watch something and it is it is as if yes 
it was us or a family member, and mm -hmm. it can be that dramatic. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age where there's so much being, so much of news that's being pushed at us, it means that even just the act of watching the news on any given day could show images that are traumatic, like Absolutely. every single day right yeah, now. There Absolutely. are images that are traumatic and touch yeah. the collective trauma. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the places that I wanted to talk with you about a little bit was fatigue. You talk about fatigue as yeah. one of the larger categories of trauma. And one of the things I appreciate so much about your book is how honest you are about your own experience. And I just wanted to thank you for that, mm -hmm. for weaving your own experience through, for not shying away from saying these things have affected me. And in fact, I sensed an inner authority in, in that because, you know, you're not just talking about people out there, you're saying this has been my experience and this is how I've experienced healing. And then I also appreciated that there was diversity in your book. It wasn't just reduced to a black and a white issue. There were stories about First Nations people and stories about Asians and stories about others that that experienced just as many traumas as others, but just different. And we don't always think of it that way. And so there was a very balanced feeling to your book as well that it acknowledges trauma across the board, racial trauma across the board. But yeah. you talk about this uh, racial battle fatigue yeah. and the study that shows how the mental and physical stress people of color face from racism is similar to what soldiers experience in battle. He said that the stress of navigating in white spaces is mentally, emotionally, and physically draining for people of color. Every day, people of color are faced with interpreting the subtleties of microaggressions, deciphering the layers of discrimination included in the insults, and deciding whether or not to respond. Yeah. The Mayo Clinic defines fatigue as nearly constant state of weariness that develops over time and reduces your energy, motivation, and concentration. I think that's a really important part of mm -hmm. our conversation today. Mm -hmm. Would you, could you talk a little bit more about microaggression, what it's like to try to always be deciphering these layers of discrimination, and then even the decision about whether to respond to something or not? Right. That's, that's tough to be in that kind of a decision-making mode all the time. Should yeah. I respond or not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that the thing with microaggressions, again, you know, there's just the term gaslighting that kind of factors mm -hmm. into this in that there are ways in which we are, are hypervigilant. We walk into spaces and we're looking, we're scanning the environment. Yeah. We're seeing, well, who's, he, who's here, who's not here? Is this a safe space for me or not a safe space for me? If we are in an environment where we feel like, okay, this, is, this isn't a safe space for me because I've heard, you know, like I was greeted at the door even. It, just, it, it immediately set off. We have to think through, okay, is that real? Did I imagine it? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's, it's helpful if there's another person of color there that you can then go, okay, this is what happened. And just to get affirmation, like, no, you're not crazy. This this really did this really did occur. Mm -hmm. But I think I think that when you have to do that all the time, mm -hmm. it it is exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And some of this taps back historically in that you know from my ancestors, who as an African American woman, like they were, my ancestors were enslaved, and so you had to be hyper vigilant. You had mm -hmm. to be. Because yeah. you needed to know who was there, who's going to get sold, what what was going to be happening. So you had to be on. And I think that we we carry like part of that as well. And so there are very few spaces 
outside of the ones that were and you know, I, I think for people of color, we all have a, our ethnic groups that we feel comfortable. We feel like we can let our hair down. We don't mm-hmm. have to stress. And so we, we love those moments and those times. But when that's not there, we are carrying that that stress that needs needs to be offloaded. We we absolutely need spaces to be able to debrief and to be able to breathe. Otherwise, you know, you know, back to that whole comment about weathering, it's just the stress just continues and we continue to, to carry that. Mm-hmm. If I could just add to that about the microaggressions, I've heard it described as like um, uh, millions of little tiny cuts, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And so those little tiny cuts do grow into bigger wounds. Mm-hmm. And then the deciding whether or not to respond, I think that that is, for me, I decide, like, I have to choose my battles. Like, what That's am cool. I going to pick up and or and decide, okay, we're going to, this is something to uh, press into, or this is just something to pay attention to and yeah. maybe talk about it down the road. Because you could talk about things all the time. And so um, just because of where we are as a country and a society, Society and learning small little perceptions and stereotypes that we hold and that we don't even realize that we're projecting those on other people. So I find that it's easier to project or excuse me, to pick one's battles, but there's mm-hmm. still much decisions that have to be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, even picking your battle, as you said, is a decision. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm not <laughs> going to deal with this right absolutely. now. That's a decision that you have. Absolutely. To make. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Sheila, you referred just very, very briefly to collective trauma. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that your ancestors were slaves, and so you know that you have that as a part of your collective awareness as um, a family. Talk about epigenetics, because I think that's a part that, something that's new, that we don't talk about a lot, is how Mm -hmm. those experiences are, well, really any traumatic experience in a family is Mm -hmm. passed down, I I believe, epigenetically. It's it's just, it's in there. But could you talk a little bit about that from your own training um, in psychology? Because I think, I think epigenetics is really, really important to understand. Yeah. Um, You know, in many ways, it's still evolving, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the initial experience or experiments were around working with First Nation groups and also with um, survivors of the Holocaust or children of those who survived the Holocaust. And what they noticed in both of those populations was that there are ways in which the children were behaving. So it's, it's two levels. One is just behaviorally, they were behaving as if they themselves actually had experienced, as in the case of um, Jews in the Holocaust. And that was rather peculiar. And so as they did more research and just medically looking at how trauma affects the cellular structure of our, our, of our not, you know, dismantling or destroying the DNA, but just weakening it mm-hmm. so that we're more susceptible to certain things, certain diseases. And that certainly is the case is that you see within certain populations, like for, for Black folk, a high level of you know, high blood pressure, um, you'll see diabetes or certain diseases that are present and they're very much connected to just levels of stress as well. But they're they're starting to to look at that. They are cautious and careful about that because then it could easily slide into eugenics, mm-hmm. which is a totally different thing. Right. Yeah. But there is a way in which physically we're experiencing that as well as just relationally and behaviorally, the consequences of racism. 
And so your book then is an answer to that, isn't it? Well, you're yeah. I mean, in in terms of the fact that you're saying that healing racial trauma could have a positive impact on what gets passed down. If if a generation chooses to do the healing work, are you saying that then it could improve what gets passed down to other generations? There there actually are studies that that talk about how a positive experience can counteract a negative experience. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lord. And it doesn't totally remove it, but it can bring about a level of healing around that. And I think about, you know, even in my own life, you know, I look at some of the early things that happened to me in regards to schooling and busing in Boston and just how hard, how traumatic that was. Mm-hmm. But then I can look I can look back and see, you know, there were there were things that happened later on in terms of yes, my addressing it and you know getting into therapy, but I also had po- some positive experiences academically that helped to heal some of that baggage from the past. Yeah. And so, if you look at kids now nowadays and kids who who are struggling and battling, like this is an opportunity even to, to start really early on to to interject those positive things that to counteract the damaging things that are that are happening in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, our scripture for this week offered to us by the lectionary is the reading of this, the story about the, the Samaritan woman and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. And you address the Samaritan woman. In fact, she's a bit of a thread in your book. You come back to her more than once. And obviously, who she is brings into the fore this topic of intersectionality this intersection of race and gender. We call it maybe a dangerous intersection mm-hmm. of race and gender. Talk a little bit about intersectionality and how you saw that in the Samaritan woman's life and maybe even how you've experienced it yourself. Because I think that's a topic that when men get together to talk about racism, they rarely talk about intersectionality. And yet as women, we understand that that's a pretty potent combination right there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the the Samaritan woman, she the two one she was a woman. Mm-hmm. Secondly, she was a Samaritan, mm-hmm. so she was like double hated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she really was, and I think that what's amazing about that story is how Jesus really goes out of his way mm-hmm. to to go there, and how he takes that time to actually sit with her. I, I find it interesting that. When I think about the woman with the issue of blood, where Jesus says to her, "Tell your whole," he invites her to tell her whole story, which is that's pretty deep. That in the midst of this patriarchal society, and this woman who's not, she's deemed as unclean, but he's taking the time to listen, to actually listen to her. In the Samaritan story, Jesus is telling her, which I find interesting. He's like, here's a man who told me everything about me, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, wow, okay. And I, I think about that. I think about how often uh, we don't really know our our story, mm-hmm. you know. We don't know the impact of racism or whatever, or some of our experiences. We don't fully grasp it, and we we absolutely need the Lord to to tell us our story and the importance of really seeking him and listening because he, he actually knows what the real story is. Sometimes we think we know what the story is. Mm -hmm. And for this woman, 
to encounter this man who actually took the time to, to actually be there and to listen was, I can't even imagine what that was like for her mm-hmm. in that, um, in that environment. Uh, but having that sense of him meeting her really freed her it was in an incredible way for yeah. her to later go back to her town, tell them this is, I met this guy. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's told me everything. And she actually becomes like one of the first evangelists. It's pretty mm-hmm. profound. And so I think that back to the intersectionality piece is that yeah. we often forget that there, there are oftentimes multiple things that are contributing to a person's story and how they navigate through, through life and how they experience many things, including racism. Have you had a personal, ex- personal yeah. experience where you knew it was not just about race, it was also about gender? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Tell us Definitely. can you tell us a little bit about that yeah. and what you knew and what you did for yourself to care for yourself and yeah. yeah. I've had multiple work experiences and and you know, I would say most of them were were either good or they were fair. But then there were some where it was clear to me that there were two things going on. And one is that, you know, having a white male boss and and then feeling like it was a double whammy in terms of this is a person who clearly had racist undertones, you know, sometimes covert, other times very overt, but clearly also misogynistic. So mm-hmm. had a disdain for women on a fundamental mm-hmm. level, but also for people who didn't look like him. And as a result of that, my having to make some decisions about do I continue with this job or not? And I, I'm i not generally a person who's going to just sit somewhere for a long, long time when that is occurring. If and, and I'm also, as I look back over history, <laughs> my own history, I'm someone who will call people on their stuff and invite them Truth to Truth teller, change. amen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but to invite them to change and and for us to have a different kind of engagement and relationship. But in many cases where it was those dynamics, I just, I had to leave. Yeah. For my own sanity. You know what, though? One thing that I wanted to say around the whole intersectionality Mm -hmm. thing is that there are ways in which that plays itself out, not just it's white men, but Mm -hmm. it's, it can be played out in many different ways. It can be played out in our own culture and our own communities where there's this notion of women and, you know, as a black woman, there's a set of expectations about, you know, that I just, you know, keep it moving, suck it up. You know, I'm going to be strong. I'm You're the strong, strong one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The carry the weight of the world on my shoulder, take mm-hmm. care of the kids, work, you know, just like a workhorse and that it takes a lot. And I, I, the Lord has said to me multiple times, Sheila, I am not asking you to make bricks without straw. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not Pharaoh, not. But there's ways in which it just can be so ingrained that we just feel like this is our this is our lot in life, and we've got to just keep keep going, keep going in our own strength, and that's that's part of the problem. Um, but we don't, you know, we have the world basically cheering us on in our bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And and we are falling into, you know, into this. And so we can be complicit in it as well. 
Sheila, I wonder, there is, there's some hope in generations that are coming up behind us because they are um, throwing off the strong black woman um, stereotype and realizing this is not helpful. (laughs) Like this is giving, putting people in the grave early. And instead I've seen it's uh, called a soft, I want soft instead instead of strong because there's much power in that as well, but it's, we don't have to do it all uh, by ourselves. Amen. And so I think that those like, I have, uh, relatives that are much younger that are just living it differently. And I am mm-hmm. applauding them and excited yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I am as well. And mm-hmm. I think that it's going to, it's going to take a little bit of, in terms of changing the entire just cultural landscape around that. And, and it's, it's difficult at the same time because as, as we're trying to figure out like, how do you have this soft life? We're still having to hold a, bunch of responsibilities. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. And so trying to navigate that and, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've always said to focus that finding moments of, of joy, of beauty, of like those moments are there mm. because too often I think we're, we're looking for like some big, the soft life. It's like, um, you know what? <laughs> The reality is life is hard and it's soft Mm -hmm. and we've got to look for beauty and there is an element. Yeah, we we do need strength, but we need, we need to be able to hold all of that and it's not easy. And so to the degree that we can support one another to, to be softer because we need to be that, that is wonderful and we need to do it and to really support one another when we have to do the hard things too. Mm -hmm. You're talking about resiliency, which is one of the ways in which you concluded your book. And I was really happy to see that chapter towards the end, because it does take a certain kind of resiliency to take this journey in an honest way, doesn't it? I mean, to do the work that you're doing, Sheila, and the work that you're doing, Tina, it you have to have real practices around resilience, I think, which you addressed in your book so beautifully. And you just described a few of them. Tina, you and I have talked about resilience as well. Why don't you say a couple of things that you experience as being part of your resiliency practice? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, I'm particularly aware of these when there has been something significant, like a collective trauma happened Mm -hmm. recently. So if when there is a another Tyree Nichols Mm -hmm. or something along those lines, I feel myself needing to press into these um, more than ever. So Sheila's already mentioned those of finding joy and embracing joy, Mm -hmm. whether it is eating a very good, delicious cookie or Mm -hmm. dancing with abandon, you know, whatever those things are singing. I also think that there's things that uh, there's a creativeness that comes out of the resiliency. So as people create, whether it is, you know, paint by numbers or, creating a poem, those things really do um, counteract um, Mm -hmm. all of the junk that, uh, for lack of a better word, all the junk that comes at us and that those are ways to press back and with hope for to build, at least that's what I do to build my resilience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The things that you mentioned help a person to touch their soul. Yeah. Like the part of them that's most real and essential and to know that's what's real in me, that poem or that, that dancing. I mean, that's real. Mm -hmm. It's not Mm -hmm. what the world is saying about me at all. It's I'm touching what's most real within me. And it's a reminder, right? Mm -hmm. So what they already know to be true, what I already know to be true. um, When the world is trying to tell me something different, it's just a reminder of what's already been placed in me. Mm -hmm. Well, Sheila, we're going to start wrapping up this conversation. I want to ask you to wrap us up by, I do want to make a strong connection between justice and 
the healing of racial trauma? Like, why is the healing of racial trauma justice work? Like, that's my last question. Tina, yeah. what have you got? And then let's see if we can bring it, bring it so all. So mine are going to be stories so, um, from her okay. book. But if you could just incorporate how important it is for everyone to, this isn't just for the, the people of color. So Ruth mm-hmm. mentioned it earlier. I would just love it to be in your answer as well, yeah. that everyone can pick up this book. Everyone can in, in, be involved in these mm-hmm. practices. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? And I think there's a link here between the two, mm-hmm. just in terms of what is the importance of justice work in yeah. in this context. And that the the stories that she's referencing, and some of it I shared about my grandfather and his having a farm and going to market, and and the black farmers getting a substantially less amount for their crops than the white farmers, and that the, a particular white farmer said to my grandfather, like before they got to market, put your stuff on my truck and I'll sell it. And then mm. you'll get them. And which he did. And mm. so my grandfather was, wow. was able to receive the proceeds of that. Now that's justice work. Mm-hmm. And it really highlights the reality that goes against a lot of this messaging that, oh, that was history and that's what people did. You know, the enslavement of Africans was just something everybody did. Not everybody did that. That's right. That's what they did. You know, you went to the farm and the market and you only got half of it. That's just what they, no, there was a guy who actually said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not fair. And so there's a way in which that justice work is, is a calling to, to action, a calling to, you know, as a believer, you know, it's really justice in line with what is the heart of God in terms of how am I to treat my neighbor justly, rightly, <laughs> you know, it's loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so it's what, Lord, would you want me to do in light of what it is that I'm seeing? And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's one-on-one and sometimes it's more collective. The other piece is that I've had more than one white person say, wow, this was really profound. And these stories reminded me of some of my stuff and my mm-hmm. stories. And and that's that's great. And I always say yes. And, and hopefully mm-hmm. that will, you'll develop empathy from that, but also it will be an opportunity for you to, to enter into what we do. <laughs> So we've had to go find ourselves and locate ourselves in your stories. Now you get to do that. You get to yeah. see this. Now we're finding ourselves in yours. yours. Yeah, which is which is a wonderful thing. I think that that the whole justice work piece is not just an individual thing. Also, I want to just say it's collective. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. as a community. How do we support one another? Yeah, you know, cross racially mm-hmm. as well as within our own ethnic groups we need people it's not just a do it on your own kind of thing that's what's going to carry us on the long long term so as we conclude what would you put out there as a really practical uh, practice that we could engage in and I really like what you're saying about it being collective not just personal I think we need to hear that more and more and more Mm -hmm. that this this is not just somebody doing their private work for their own private healing right there's a collective element to that so what could we do, those of us who'd like to be justice leaders, what can we do in this in arena of healing racial trauma? How can we be a part of that? How can we contribute to that part of the justice work? Yeah. 
there are multitudes of ways to engage that. And it's beyond just, you know, signing a petition or marching or whatever. But one thing that I, I love that Tina mentioned, that whole creative aspect and that sometimes I ask people to, in, in engaging in listening prayer, of, of thinking about, you know, Lord, can you give me some kind of image, imagery to represent like where I am at in this issue? Hmm. And so there have been some really powerful insights as people have drawn themselves as a number of things. Like they've drawn themselves as a tree and it's kind of like, a, what season are you in as it, re- as it relates to justice work? And some people it's like, well, I'm in winter, you know, there's like nothing there. Mm-hmm. It looks like things are dormant or dead. Um, and then encouraging them to draw it and to also go back in prayer and asking the Lord, okay, what is the meaning here? What is it that you're wanting to say to me, Lord? And it's just a different way to kind of access what's actually going on internally and that the Lord may bring up a scripture verse, maybe a memory, it may be some way in which he's directing you or just even saying, you know, this is a season right now where things are kind of fallow. You know, it doesn't look like anything's happening, but just like in winter, a lot's happening that you don't see. And so I want you to to begin to start to write out some things. Even if you're not ready to act upon it right this second, and yet there may be some things that he's asking you to do right now. Um, but to Try to get at it in a different way, not just yeah. kind of sitting and contemplating or mm-hmm. or just because everybody's saying you should be doing this. You should just do that. Um, and I think 2020, we saw that a lot of people mm. just mm. <laughs> because Amen. two years later, I'm like, mm, what was that all about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think we, to even maybe share those images back and forth oh. as a way of saying this is where I think I am right yeah. now. and. I loved your emphasis on being in each other's stories and maybe even the images give us a way in to to each other's stories. Well, thank you, Sheila, so much, and also you as well, Tina. I'm so grateful for the conversation. I feel like we could go on for about three more hours, but mm-hmm. uh, but we won't. We'll just uh, ask God to help this to be enough for right now, and who knows what might be there for us in the future. And so I think today we will just conclude with the reading of the story of the Samaritan woman, and given what we've discussed here about healing racial trauma and intersectionality, to just listen to her story through the lens of justice and racial healing and how Jesus was with her and just say to Jesus, what do you have for me in this story? Looking at it through a different, a slightly different lens with a different level of reflection today. Um, And just trust that God might speak to us through this very powerful of Jesus encounter with uh, a woman who was suffering um, Mm -hmm. on all these levels. And Mm -hmm. Jesus presence with her was the redemptive Mm -hmm. element for her story. And may we be redemptive elements in each other's stories. I pray that it might be so. Thank you. Amen. Amen. A reading from John 4, verses 5 through 42. From the First Nations Version, read by its translator, Terry Wildman. There he came to a place called Burial Site which was near a piece of land heel-grabber had passed down to his son Creator Gives More. Weary from his journey, about the sixth hour of the day, Creator sets free, sat down to rest at the ancient watering-hole of heel-grabber, 
while the ones who walked the road with him went to the nearby village to find some food. The sun had reached midpoint in the sky. It was now the time of day when no one would normally come to the watering hole. A woman from High Place came to the well to draw water. Crater Sets Free saw the woman and said to her, Would you give me some water to drink? This surprised the woman, because a traditional man would not speak to a woman in public. She found her voice and asked, Why would you, a man from the tribes of wrestles with Creator, ask me for a drink, seeing I am a woman from High Place? She said this because the tribes of wrestles with Creator have no dealings with the people from High Place. If you only knew about Creator's good gift, he answered, and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would ask him for living water, and he would give it to you. She said to him, Honored one, this watering hole is deep, and you have no way to draw out the water. Where will you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor, Heel Grabber, who gave us this well and was first to drink from it with his children and animals? The ones who drink from this well will thirst again, Creator Sets Free answered, but the ones who drink the water I give will never thirst, for this water will become a river flowing from inside them, giving them the life of the world to come that never fades away, full of beauty and harmony. Honored one, please give me this water, she said to him, so I will never thirst again or need to walk this long path to get a drink. He said to her, Go to your husband and bring him here. I have no husband, she answered. Yes, that is true, Creator Sets Free said. You have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. Her eyes grew wide as she lifted a trembling hand to her mouth. Oh, I see you are a prophet, she said back to him. Our ancestors honored and served the great spirit on this mountain. But your people say the only place to make our prayers and perform our ceremonies is in Village of Peace. This was a very old argument between the people of High Place and the tribes of Wrestles with Creator. Honored woman, trust my words, Creator Sets Free said to her. Your people honor and serve him, but in ways they do not fully understand. We honor and serve him with understanding, for the good road that sets us free has been entrusted to the tribes of wrestles with Creator. But the time is coming when all who honor and serve the great mystery will not need to do so in this mountain, nor in village of peace. The Father is looking for the ones who will honor Him in spirit and truth. And the day for this has now come. The one above us all is spirit, and all who honor and serve the great spirit must do so in spirit and truth. I know the chosen one will come, she said, and when he comes, he will make all things clear to us. Creator Sets Free said to her, I am the chosen one, the one who is speaking to you now. Just then his followers returned. They wondered 
why he was talking to the woman, but no one said to her, What do you want? Or to him, Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water pouch, went to the village, and told the people, Come and see this man who knows everything about me. Could he be the chosen one? The people of the village went to find him. Meanwhile, the ones who walked the road with him said, Wisdom keeper, here is some food to eat. I have food to eat you know nothing about, he said. His followers whispered to each other, None of us brought him anything to eat. He knew what they were saying, so he said to them, What feeds me is to do the will of the one who sent me, and to finish his work. It has been said, Is it not four moons until the harvest? Open your eyes. The harvest is upon you now. The ones who reap the harvest are rewarded, because they are gathering grain for the life of the world to come that never fades away. Both the ones who plant the seed and the ones who harvest will celebrate together. This is a true saying. One plants and another reaps. I send you to reap where others have done the work of planting, and now it is you who will gather. Soon, many people from the woman's village in high place arrived. Many believed in him because the woman had said, he knows everything about me. They asked him to stay, so he remained there for two more days. When they heard him speak, many more believed in him. They said to the woman, We believe now, not just because of your words, but because we have heard him ourselves. We now see that this is the one who will restore the world and set all people free.